welcome back to Making Conversations Count. I'm Wendy Harris, your host and expert telemarketing trainer. So let's get to making conversations about mountaineering count. What's new, Wendy Wu? Well, I'm pleased to tell you that in 2022, you are going to be able to work online with me in a one-to-one basis. If you want to find out more, you better just hit me with an email or a DM from the platforms of your choice. I'll be waiting to pick up and carry on that conversation with you. And this week, I promised you a lady that had literally touched the heavens. And I'm so pleased to introduce Cathy O'Dowd. Now, she is a lady who has climbed the mountain and by the mountain, I hadn't realised that was known in the mountaineering world as Everest. Now, she's climbed it not just once, but she's climbed it twice. And I saw her uh, do a motivational speaker set online and she did an amazing job of explaining the parallels between climbing a mountain and running a business. So sit back and enjoy how being part of a team and having to trust each other in a team can be the difference to your success. And even if only one person reaches the summit, it's the fact that you are part of a team that that worked. Wow. Here with me to join a conversation is a lady who thinks like an explorer and actually speaks about where mountains meet management. So without further ado, I think it's only right that I should introduce Kathy. Kathy O'Dowd. Hello, Kathy. Great to be here. Thank you for joining me all the way from the mountain. <laughs> it's lovely to have you here. Now, everybody that that comes on the show, we talk about how conversation is important and how we can make conversations count in our daily lives. And for those that don't know you, I think it's only right that you should let everybody know what you are perhaps most famous for achieving. Well, I guess the thing that's always going to make the first line of my obituary would be the first South African to climb Everest, followed by the first woman in the world to climb Everest from both sides, both the north and the south sides. And that's to get to the summit as well, right, isn't it, Cathy? Because that bit's important, is it? Um, you can't claim to have climbed the mountain if you didn't get to the summit. Ah, right, so, okay. See, so not a climber. Okay. Education. <laughs> you actually do need to get to the top to claim you've done it. <laughs> it's not just, oh, we've gotten so far and uh, had a rest and decided to turn around and go back. Yeah. Into the top. Wow. What is the view like? Hmm. Well, you're so high, you can see the curve of the earth, which is um, pretty cool. Although most people don't realise you can see the curve of the earth out of your aeroplane window if you actually are in the right place at the right spot. <laughs> but nevertheless, that feeling of still being, you know, still being standing with both your feet on the ground and yet being the highest person in the world, looking hundreds of miles out across India and Nepal. And 
that sense of height and space. Also the fact that you're so high, you actually can't see any sign of human development. The planet just looks incredibly pristine and wild when you're, when you're that high up. Wouldn't that be a lovely thought to see a pristine earth? But that's a completely different topic, right, Cathy? Yes. Yes. It's something that's always fascinated me. It's kind of one of those action movies that, that you sit in the arm of your chair and Hollywood can take you on an adventure without you having to get cold or run out of food or have to make any scary decisions that could result in loss of limb or life. What got you into climbing in the first place? Well, the short answer, summer camps as a teenager, doing up in the mountains, doing basic adventure sports. I liked hiking and camping. I liked rock climbing. And then once I got to university, I got my first chance to really get involved. And I took up rock climbing, which I loved and still loved. And that started a, a lifelong journey through the mountains. And although climbing has been in, rock climbing has sort of been a foundation through all of that, I then explored all sorts of different things, just being curious. And that brought me to, you know, high altitude mountaineering and to ski mountaineering and to canyoneering and to all sorts of different ways of engaging deeply in sort of technical risk management environments in the wilderness. Was that a result of some of the people that you would meet on your journey that had been to other places and and were explaining their experiences of different climate experiences? To some extent, yes, although I'm very self-motivated. So a lot of these things, I found my own way to them rather than got introduced by somebody. One pivotal moment, I was already... Rock climbing, I'd done some basic mountaineering in Africa and the Andes. I'm, I'm South African, so this was happening out of South Africa. Reading a book called Annapurna, A Woman's Place by Arlene Bloom. And it was the story of the first all-woman's expedition to the Himalaya. And before reading the book, I never visualized the Himalaya. It was too big, too distant, too masculine somehow. It wasn't an environment I could envisage myself in. But having read a book, I was sort of like, okay, hang on. It, is, it, it wouldn't be possible. And that's, in fact, what brought me to the first Everest trip. Not Everest. I was never motivated by or focused on Everest. All I wanted was an opportunity to go to the Himalaya. And the first opportunity that came up was the first South African Everest expedition. Wow. So it's a little bit serendipitous then that what you had sort of envisaged in your mind became your reality, I suppose, by following the journey, following the, the breadcrumbs. I think luck is a real thing. It's a real part of success and we can't discount luck, but... You do have to be in the space and actively working towards the things you're interested in to get the lucky break. I could not agree more with you there, Cathy. So from climbing the mountain twice, I know that you 
impart the thinking like an explorer, you're not there on your own, are you? you you're in as, as a part of a team and you've got to be able to work together. So how did you find one, the, I suppose, the right team and how did that communication relationship evolve for you? Well, one of the interesting things about mountaineering, I think why it makes quite a good metaphor activity for business, it's not like sport. You didn't all get brought in through years of training and selection by experts and supported by a team psychologist and our on the team wins together or loses together. Mountaineering is wildly more individualistic. You quite possibly end up on a team where you barely know the other people. And once you get to know them, you may not like them. Success does not require every person to get to the top. You are only going to get one person of the team to the top and hopefully all of you home alive. And that's, you know, a successful trip. Often what you're trying to do is too hard for every single person to get to the top. Some people, the people who are weaker in whatever way are going to need to step down and support. So it's a little bit more like business. Yes, you're part of a team, but you're also individually ambitious. Yes, you need to collaborate with other people, but you've also, you're the only one looking out for your personal career. And that team is probably a bunch of people you didn't necessarily choose and you may not necessarily like. And it's the same sort of things that make it work. You yourself need to be professional, skilled, self-confident, and constantly learning. So that if you, even if you don't have the skills, when you join the team, you have the ability to learn to acquire the skills as you go. You also need the ability to work with other people. I think as long as there's a certain basic respect and understanding that you're on the same side and you're moving towards the same goal, that's enough. These don't have to be lifelong friends. The plenty of people I'd happily climb a mountain with, but I do not want to spend a week on holiday with. That's possibly similar to to most people in most working environments, isn't it, as well? And I'm guessing that the mountain is in charge as well because of the conditions, that that's kind of what business would see as external to the people because there are things that you can't control, always moving parts. That's got to test your honesty with yourself and I guess your mettle as well, in dealing with whatever may come next. Absolutely. I think it's also the foundation of what I think is one of the key mistakes. There's a great deal that's out of your control, both on the side of a mountain and in a business environment. And where we can often have the most impact is by putting time and thought into the soft skills, making sure that a team is as good as it can possibly be making sure that a really good team is even better, pushing them right up into high performance. That's tricky. It's hard to put that stuff on a spreadsheet. Mm. It's hard to put numbers to that. A lot of people are uncomfortable with delving into managing people and emotionals and team cohesion, bonding, vision, group goals, interpersonal support. They didn't choose to climb mountains or to run businesses because they thought that's what they were good at. But that's where you make a difference. 
you can't stop the storms, you can't stop COVID, you can't turn the economy around single-handedly. What you can do is build a group of people with a purpose and a vision to take advantage of whatever opportunities arise in the chaos of the mountain or the business world. A group of people who've got the agility, the resilience, the perception to bounce back from setbacks and see and exploit opportunities. It's the irony, isn't it, that the challenges that you have faced in climbing the mountain has, has, has in effect, grounded you. And I'm thinking of the metaphor where people refer to the iceberg. It's just the tip of the iceberg, yet it's what you see below the the waterline. It's really set you up, I guess, for what you also do when you're not climbing in helping teams in business and, and those communication skills. Was that part of your professional plan as a sort of day job? whilst you were climbing as a hobby or was it the other way around? Which came first? The climbing came first. I actually trained as a journalist and then stayed on in academia, in media studies, mostly to dodge getting a real job. And I was trying to climb all the mountains I could get to. And in fact, when we first discussed this podcast, two key conversations came to mind, and this was one of them. I came back from my first Everest expedition, so I'm now the first South African to climb Everest. But equally, the expedition was terrible. The team was awful. The infighting was just so painful. Three members walked out before we got to base camp. Things got quite a lot better after that. But the initial negativity and power play was just astonishing from a group of what should have been professionals with a shared goal. So I came home with this extraordinary experience, which was, had been as negative as it had been positive, and did a couple of talks in the style of the Olympic gold medalist. You get invited to give a talk because people just want to be in the same room, hear the gossip, get an autograph, and you get your 15 minutes and then, you know, the world moves on. The challenge is as a, a motivational speaker is how do you stay in the business for years and decades? And at this point, I've been doing this since, oh, let's think, 30 years now, nearly. How do you manage to keep on going after your 15 minutes is long since managed? And that's about being relevant to your audience being able to talk about things that really matter to them. And in my case, I got invited out to lunch by a friend who was a, a corporate team trainer. You know, he did these, he took corporate teams out for these day-long outdoor exercises, doing trust falls and, you know, team, team building challenges and that kind of thing. And he knew the, the men who'd walked out on the team. He was fascinated as to what had gone wrong. Because, of course, the media had only got curiosity factor. Sensationalized, very limited version. So I spent the next three hours unloading about what happened and I didn't understand. And 
how would we ended up like that? And it had all felt like so exceptional, so unexpected. And Chris eventually rolled his eyes and said, have you ever heard of a, a business guru called Ken Blanchard, who at that time was famous, I think, for the One Minute Manager books. But he also had a cycle of team development, forming, storming, norming, performing. So getting together, inevitable conflict, surviving the conflict, and then trying to pull yourself up into a really high-performing team. And he said, you guys sound like a total cliche. It's like, oh, right, there I was thinking it was so exceptional. And we weren't. <laughs> so, like, okay. And I went away and read Ken Blanchard's stuff. And it helped with another problem, which is I don't like talking about me all that much. It makes me uncomfortable. Oh, so, I know um, what you mean. Yeah, I do know what you mean. I was never going to be brilliant as the kind of motivational speaker who went, look at me and be inspired. Like, oh, God, that's not going to work. <laughs> I'd much rather kind of remove myself a little bit. So I took Ken Blanchard's cycle of teen development, used it as a skeleton, and redesigned my talk as an illustration of team dynamics. So it still had all the trauma of a true story and while I was still in South Africa, all the gossip that people had heard in the newspapers. But it was also now based in kind of business team psychology in a way that both team members and managers of teams found useful and interesting. I also think the fact that I was prepared to talk quite honestly about the failure and the mistakes we made and how badly we behaved early on. People found that really quite surprising and refreshing rather than let me tell you how incredibly successful our team was. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to relate too much to but that, that's what oh, yeah. resonates, isn't it? Because we've all been in situations that we probably don't want to confess to, but it does add light and shade to the story. Absolutely. And I think people associate more with something when we say we were good, but we also made some terrible mistakes and our failure was almost entirely on us. And people find that refreshing because most of us are in that space. We're good, but we're not perfect. And we're battling to try and do our best on a day-by-day basis. So yes, out of that conversation with Chris, but then also my own capacity to take that conversation and say, not just, for example, I can use this structure to structure my talk, but also this helps to solve other problems I'm having about not wanting to talk about myself. And I could use the kernel of the idea he gave me and then develop it over time into something that I think neither he or I would, would ever have predicted. That's the magic, isn't it? When a conversation can take you down a road that you never even thought you were going to travel. You know, so climbing a mountain is fantastic. However, for me, my in my opinion, Cathy, creating that model, that's the real story because of how many people's lives and perceptions and uh, that you can affect change for them to be the, the better version of themselves, you know, at, at work or personally, because let's face it, what we learn at work, we do take home with us. Oh, yes. I mean, life's a team sport in the traffic to collaborate with other people in every aspect. Yeah. You know, whether it's friends or marriages or, or children or, or work colleagues. If I can give you very quickly a little bit of an epilogue, 
Uh, because, of course, I found Everest, okay, maybe 25 years ago, and love has changed. So these days, I didn't even talk about Everest much because now they've basically got a fixed safety line from base camp to the summit. You don't actually have to be a climber to get up Everest. I saw some pictures um, where there was, a, there was like a queue to get to the top. Yeah. You don't even need to bring an ice axe anymore. You just clip into the safety line and make sure you're facing in the right direction. And then, you know, off you go. It spoils it a little bit, doesn't it? Which, of course, kind of spoils it for me and the speaker as well, because that's not that inspiring anymore. But in the mountain space, I was able to use my Everest experience to continue to build, to continue to learn, to continue to grow as a climber. And... Much later, I ended up on the most difficult expedition I've ever been on, where we were trying to climb a new route, so a route that no one had ever done before, on an 8,000-meter peak. Why am I so not surprised? Uh, Everest. It wasn't much fun at the time. It was very difficult. But it makes for a great story because it was so difficult. Were there good what, lessons yeah. to take away from it, though? Because oh, totally. lessons that sort of stand you in good stead to try again. What what I'm hearing is that you've never given up climbing. Oh no, 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 no! I'm giving up climbing is not on. That's like saying, <laughs> Kathy, stop breathing. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about that climb, which where we succeeded, two members of the team did get the route done. That has now become my go-to kind of case study. And Everest now becomes an example of the old world. Certain, known, predictable, but also you're in a queue with a hundred other people doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to move on from early success. You've got to reinvent yourself. You've got to step out into the unknown, the unpredictable, the unexpected. And you may be doing that by choice because you're trying to be an innovator, or you may be doing that because the world forced that upon you and stuff happened that you didn't predict. Your five-year plan is now in tatters and you are having to react yeah. to an incredibly changed environment. So I'm getting clients from both sides interested. And this is where the idea of thinking like an explorer comes from. Interested in this idea. How do you operate in an environment where you don't know what to expect? No one else has ever done it before. You don't know exactly what's going to go wrong. All you've got is your team and your skills and your creativity to try and make this work. And belief that it will work. Belief that you can deal with it. Because the thing about climbing, winners never quit is a terrible maxim. You should absolutely quit in all sorts of situations. If, if it, the mountain is too dangerous, get out, get home. You could die. Yeah. Um, in business, you know, if you've already lost a billion, don't lose another billion. Call it quits. <laughs> Give it to charity. It's called Wendy Paris. Knowing when to call it quits and yeah. stop and move on to something else. That's one of life's great skills. Yeah, You're right. You are right there, Kathy. So what's next? Well... I'm not sure there are going to be any more big Himalayan expeditions. I think we'll leave that to the younger generation at this point because the, the first ascents are now incredibly technically difficult. On a personal level, I've always been interested in continuing to learn and sort of taking my skills and pivoting them 
So in the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of technical canyoning. So you're still in the big mountains, but now you disappear into the deep river gorges and then you go down the river. And we're talking really narrow with ropes, you know, and once you start going down, you can't get out. You've got to keep going down. So there's real risk involved and a lot of technical skill around water and rope work. But it's still what I like, very small teams, risk management, and exploring in these wild places. So that's where I've gone um, in the mountain space in the last couple of years. That's in mountaineering on skis, which is good fun. It's a lot more fun to ski back down the mountain than to have to walk back down the mountain. <laughs> Do you ever record your climbs? You, you know, if you've got a camera on your helmet, to, to be able to sort of sh- share for teaching or for just curiosity of what's down there? Not really, because honestly, it's two separate projects. Making a decent film of an adventure is really difficult. Okay. It requires much more time and much more equipment and more people, partly because everything has to be done about three times and the cameras have to be set up in advance and then you do the thing and then you go back to retrieve the cameras. And I'm more interested in the purity of the actual experience. I, I don't want to be at a remove with the camera at the same time. I, I try and take photographs as I go, but that, that's about it. And let's face it, if they want to see it, they're going to have to just learn to climb and do it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ready to compete with the, you know, the professional red football camera crews. I, don't know. <laughs> I was thinking more Blair Witch Project, you know. But uh... <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> well, that, that would be me anyway, if I was, you know, because you wouldn't really know where I was looking because I wouldn't know what I was doing, but... Uh... It sounds like you're never going to exhaust the adventures and be able to translate those into lessons for people in business. I, I will certainly keep adventuring for the rest of my life. I, for the lessons, I tend to draw on the most interesting and sort of complex of the big Himalayan expeditions because I think they're the ones that have real kind of depth and value for corporate clients. I don't think they really need to know what I did last weekend. That's on my Instagram if anybody cares. But with, with the corporate work, I stick with the, the, the big Himalayan expeditions. And of course, one of my challenges, like all of us, was to transition with COVID into doing all of this online, where beforehand everything had happened with the, the electricity of being in the space with people. And now trying to capture that across a, you know, across a computer screen. Yeah, the energy is different, but it is still doable. One of the things I've done with that was to take some of the stories where there were key decision-making moments and actually poll the audience as in in the moment in the talk. This is the problem. These are the choices. Not enough information. That's tough. You've got to choose. What would you choose? And suddenly they, they've got skin in the game. They've actually, you know, made a choice. And they're very I remember being in the audience. Well. I think I died very early on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was a great way to get everybody invested in the story because from what felt like an obvious choice that was wrong, but once you'd explained why the choice was this, 
I think most people were just sat there going, oh, yeah, of course, because we screen our brains, don't we? We talk our brains out of different things for different reasons. So I think it's great to have that kind of challenge as well. It was, it was really you know, often We didn't always make the right choices. It does perfect the reality. A lot of project management is actually just making a choice and then managing the consequences while trying to keep on moving towards whatever your ultimate goal is. <laughs> well, Kathy, I really, really appreciate you coming and sharing with us, you know, the experiences that have taken you on this lifelong journey. Long may you stay safe and keep adventuring. <laughs> if anybody wants to reach out to you, where's the best place for them to do that after listening? So my website, which is kathyodal.com. You'll find a contact page there, and that's mostly information about my talks and just a little bit of blogging. And then Instagram, which is at Kathy O'Dowd, you'll find sort of day-to-day pictures of all the adventures in the mountains. Fantastic. We'll put all the details in the show notes. Once again, thank you so much for your time, Kathy. It's been fantastic to speak to you. It's been a great pleasure. I'm sure many of you will agree now after listening to Kathy talking about the tactics of her mountaineering and achieving what she has across the Himalayas and some of those remote parts of the world that I couldn't even see myself in. There are decisions that you need to make because there are extremities that are going to affect you that are out of your control. So do pick up the conversation with Kathy if you've got a team and it feels like you're climbing a mountain. She's definitely the lady for you. If you need some other more sort of base camp help with your team on a telephone training point of view, do hit me up too. Next week, I'm going to be dead honest with our guest. She won the 2021 Best Interview Podcast and she's so incredibly insightful about the journey of podcasting that we couldn't help but get dead honest talking about it. You'll want to tune in to hear more insights about that with Georgie Bestie next time. We can't make that judgment ahead of time we just can put it put it out there and hope that it finds an audience and i think that's one of the reasons why i love podcasting